There comes a moment in time when the things that we could once do, the things that we did easily and without much effort, become more difficult, maybe even impossible. It is in those moments that the reality of what chronic pain and illness can do to the body and mind becomes apparent. The experience of the first episode or attack is now interwoven into a web that has transformed our lives. This episode tells the stories of first encounters with what would become a chronic pain or illness. The act of remembering pain and illness, however, is not linear. The past becomes the present. The future is a mixed bag of unknowns. Living in chronicity entails loathing time, but also cherishing it more than anything else. Like a stitch, both time and our bodies have begun to unravel. Welcome to Chronicity. Oh, let's see here. Where do I start? <laughs> That's usually how I uh, start that. That's Tim Bryan. Well, I um, usually what I tell folks is um, I, I have a carpal tunnel in uh, in uh, both wrists, um, um, and my carpal tunnel is due to a accident that I had in the Air Force. Um, fell off of a uh, C-130 and uh, landed on the uh, landed on the uh, tarmac there, and uh, also had a motorcycle accident in there. So I busted up my wrist uh, pretty well in the Air Force, um, and and that's where it comes from. And then it um, slowly creeped onto the other side. So um, how do I describe how it feels? Um, kind of depends on the, uh, the the time of year. Now, um, uh, luckily, I live in Virginia, which it doesn't get too hot, too cold. I used to, when I lived in Chicago, it was a nightmare because when it gets cold out, um, my hands want to cramp up and I can't uh, hold on to anything. They they kind of stay frozen, uh, for lack of a better term, in one position, um, and it's very painful. Now, the job that I do. I do a lot of typing, which also can cause carpal tunnel um, and aggravate it. Um, and so it gets to the point sometimes where it feels like I'm using two big clubs while I'm trying to type something, uh, you know, type a report or, or, or what have you, or type, uh, you know, show notes for a podcast. The show he hosts is called the KDOI Podcast. The show is all about exploring the creative process with creative people. I was wondering what carpal tunnel syndrome feels like and what causes it to flare up. I was curious if he also suffered from what I like to call hangovers, that lingering feeling of blahness that hangs around for a while after we do too much. Yeah, it'll, it'll get bad uh, for, you know, after a flare-up, it'll be, it'll be bad that whole day. Um, the hangover effect on the next day is um, where it's painful, um, then it'll, it'll turn into uh, a lot of numbness and tingling, um, which, you, you know, if you want one or the other, um, I, I guess I'll, t- I'll go with the numbness and tingling, um, which is weird to have at the same time because, you know, people are like, well, it's numb, so you can't feel, but it's numb and tingly. Uh, it's like having a thousand needles coming into it. Um, I usually prefer that versus the pain uh, because that I can have fun with, I guess. I, for lack of a better term, it's kind of... Um, uh, it's kind of like being a kid again and, you know, sitting on your hands and, until they fall asleep and then popping them out and see what you can do, you know. Most recently, uh, my carpal tunnel, uh, back in 2014, 
Carpal tunnel was uh, really kicking up hardcore. And so I knew about another 14 years of dealing with the pain and the aggravation. And uh, it got so bad I couldn't hold a uh, couldn't hold a cigarette. You know, I'm driving around, can't even hold a cigarette while I'm trying to drive uh, in uh, in traffic. And you know, doing that in the middle of a traffic jam on I-95, which is our big uh, interstate uh, going up here through uh, D.C. Yeah, it's not a fun thing to do. You know, I don't recommend it. His pain has come and gone over the years, but when it returned in full force in late 2014, it led to spinal stenosis and eventually cervical fusion surgery. We were uh, going to do a spinal tap uh, on me uh, to you know help with the diagnosis of MS to you know kind of unwrap that onion. Um, but I let, I let my neurologist know I'm like, hey, listen, my carpal tunnel is really kicking in hardcore. Can we take a look at that? And uh, so he, before we took the uh, uh, before we did the spinal tap, um, he went ahead and did a MRI of my neck. And uh, basically, he looks at me and goes, "Have you ever driven a truck?" And I was like, "No." He's like, "Have you ever jumped out of planes?" No, because you have the neck of a seventy-year-old truck driver. I'm like, "Well, what does that mean?" And he goes, "Well, basically, you have no spinal fluid getting through uh, C4, five, and uh, C4 through C7. You got no spinal fluid going through. And if you, you do a spinal tap that takes spinal fluid out." And if I did that without checking, uh, basically you wouldn't be walking right now. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's go get this fixed. And he thought, well, you know, if we get that fused, maybe we can relieve the, the, the tension, uh, the pressure on those nerves. And that could be uh, a contributing factor to your, uh, to your carpal tunnel. So uh, we did that uh, surgery, uh, the C4 through C7 fusion. Um, where I like to always say that they wrapped my vocal cords around my ankle because um, I sounded so wonderful. You really didn't. So we went ahead and did that. Came out of that surgery on Halloween of all times. Um, well, my, my, my girls dressed it up as minions and I dressed it up as a patient. So it was a great time for everybody. They got candy and I had a breathing tube. It was fantastic. I don't think it was. Well, they, they also gave me morphine. They uh, gave me uh, one of those uh, morphine pumps and I was like, oh, this is this is Papa's treat. This is Papa's treat right here. <laughs> Tim has had a long journey with carpal tunnel syndrome, gaining a deep knowledge and learning how to manage his pain and adapt his life. Now he faces a whole new set of unknowns. <laughs> So uh, we knocked all that out, uh, which was fine. Um, I still have carpal tunnel kind of bad. It didn't resolve it. Um, I wasn't fully expecting it to because my, my goal was to get the spinal tap to press on towards the MS kind of diagnosis. Because I, I figured the sooner we can either get a full-blown, yes, we got it, no, we don't, or you know, at least a clearer picture. I've dealt with carpal tunnel since 93. I, I, I know what it is. I, I've got a good handle on it. Um, I, you know, I can rock out with that MS. That's a whole other ball of wax that I've got to teach myself uh, and, and learn a lot about. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of resources out there. So uh, that's what I'm doing right now is, you know, teaching myself in case it happens. I'm going to knock on wood uh, that it doesn't. But, you know, that's, that's kind of where we're sitting at right now. One of the most overwhelming types of pain is the kind that reverberates inside your head. It's the constant pounding, the screeching, 
the pressure, the shimmering that wakes you up and then prevents you from falling back asleep. It can be inescapable. Now you're exhausted, frustrated, irritable, and drained. It's the unstoppable nails on the chalkboard sound that is inside your head that is driving you mad. Migraine sufferers know these feelings all too well. I chatted with Tracy about her life, work, migraines, and what it's like deciding between staying at home in a dark room or seeing family members. Well, yeah, I I get up early, early, early in the morning. So I, I get up at 4.30 and I start teaching at 5. So I teach from 5 to noon. And uh, so it's, you know, nice. I've always been an early morning person. I, I don't... Uh, I don't sleep well, although, you know, it's hard to fall asleep early enough to get up that early. But uh, but yeah, but no, I just I, you know, I love the job. And one of the great advantages is I can work from home. So I don't have to get up really early. I don't have to drive to work. You know, I don't have to, you know, um, uh, spend the extra time with commuting and all of that. And uh, it really saves some uh, some energy (laughs) that way. So so it's a great job. You only have so much, you know, you only have so far you can go and you run out, it's over with. So it's really nice if you can only use so much of that at work and then you have the rest of it for yourself and your family and everything else that you want to do. So, so yeah, this is a, this is an ideal job and not to mention that it's very interesting and, you know, I get to talk to really interesting people and, and, you know, a little bit of experience with other cultures. And so, so yeah, I love it. I love it. So my background is actually in economics. I, I have a, a bachelor's degree in economics and, uh, and I worked in, uh, I was a financial reporting analyst for the big telecom company that's uh, headquartered here in Kansas city. So, you know, I did that for a lot of years too, but uh, um, I actually left that career and came home because of my middle son who has autism. So <laughs> very complicated life. But uh, but yeah, but uh, so things are nice these days. <laughs> um, my migraines feel and always have felt the same thing since the very beginning. They feel like an ice pick right in the right temple. I mean, that's the biggest part of it is, is right there. Um, I do get the aura. I get that kind of indescribable feeling that tells you it's coming. Um, and, and I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to pin down the words to describe an aura. It's just a, a sensation or, or um, it's just that knowing that it's coming. Um, every once in a while I get a visual effect. Um, like I, I lose part of the sight in, one, in, my, uh, in my right eye. Um, I get the little silvery speckles in my vision. Um, I get the sensitivity to light. I get the sensitivity to sound. Um, as they last longer, I get um, the tension all in the right side of my head and my neck too from resisting the pain. So, but it's just always, it's always been right in my right temple and it's always, they've always been centered in exactly the same spot. It has never moved in 30 years. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I I am tired of it, but in a sense, it's also I don't know reassuring. I think if they ever changed, then I'd be convinced I had a brain tumor or something. But the fact that it's always the same thing, it's like okay, well, it's just a migraine. You know, it's not going to kill me. It's something to endure. It's something that I got to wait out. But you know, at least it's still just a migraine. <laughs> so enduring, waiting it out. Tracy seems to be in a good place with her migraines, but when I pressed her, tell me how it affects her. We hear how the chronic experience of pain is actually limiting. Certain triggers set off her symptoms, 
things that most people take for granted. Um, lack of sleep is a trigger. Um, um, too much noise and light is a trigger. I, I can't go to movies. I can't go to movies in a movie theater. The sound and the light are too much. Um, heat and humidity um, are a trigger. I get a lot more of them in the summer than I do in the winter. Um, so those are the big ones that I know of. Um, um, interestingly, like... Um, um, prednisone, if I've ever had something that you have to take prednisone for, that is a huge trigger. And because um, they're used to treat inflammation, which you know, helps with pain. But uh, in my case, like they can ease pain in joints, but they trigger migraines. So if I even get an injection of a steroid, like I got an injection in my shoulder a while ago to try to help um, ease some things there. And it helped the shoulder, but it triggered like a five-day migraine. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay. For Tracy, relief is always fleeting. When her pain does subside... She never knows exactly when it will come back, but what's for certain is that it will. It's just that tired and draggy feeling and uh, like you're just not quite focused on everything and it's like the pain is gone, but you're not all the way there yet. Like it could come back and you're, it's that walking on eggshells feeling like, is it going to come back? Are we going to be there again? <laughs> you know. On top of migraines, Tracy has been dealing with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome a rather rare condition that is often misdiagnosed. In spite of this, Tracy's laugh and good humor has remained and is a testament to her courage and ability to keep moving forward. So what Ehlers-Danlos is is a connective tissue disorder. So that's where it replaces the fibromyalgia because it's the connective tissue and the, everything that connects the muscles and the joints and and all of that. It's not what it should be. It it, it breaks down easier. It's stretchier than it should be, and uh, and all of that. It's like the hyperflexible. The joints bend further than they're supposed to. You flex more than you're supposed to. Um, so maybe the, and uh, this is just, I don't know as much of it as I could, or maybe even the researchers don't know as much as they, as they will <laughs> in the future, but maybe the arthritis comes from joints that flexed a lot more than they should have over the years. And so things in the joint capsule started to break down and in my, yeah, like it started in my thumbs and my thumbs still bend a lot farther than they should. So, um, yeah, joints dislocate a lot easier. Um, um, the doctor who diagnosed me explained, though, that um, people with EDS have a lot fewer broken bones because your tendons and your ligaments give out before your bones break. <laughs> He's like, he's like, yeah, they're like unbreakable. You're, you're super people. You can go through a severe accident and not breaking any bones because all of your tendons have stretched and given out instead. And I have, knock on wood, never broken a bone in my life. So, yeah. So um, multiple sclerosis is a, uh, an autoimmune uh, disease. The best way to describe Rhett Hall is blunt and supportive. 
Rhett hosts the Brain Trust Bros podcast and is the founder of the Brain Trust Network, which is just as supportive and encouraging as Rhett is. He's telling me about his experiences with multiple sclerosis and filling us all in on what MS is. Uh, where basically your white blood cells, uh, your the, the things that take away the infections out of your body and help 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 you heal, basically, um, attack the myelin, which is a, a sheath that goes around your nerves. So uh, it starts kind of eating away at that, um, and it can affect literally any part of your body. Um, it can affect you uh, in a muscular way. It can affect you, you know, joint. It can fa- really affect anything. Your brain. It can affect your your thought processes. Um, your eyes, anything, your speech, whatever. There's like four different types of, of MS, um, and I have the least uh, volatile version, I guess, the the uh, relapsing remitting, which um, every once in a while you'll have a relapse where you'll end up having some sort of uh, symptom and then go and have IV steroids or something like that, and uh, you're, you're back, and you're usually in remission for quite a while. It's It's... It's kind of just come and go. Um, there's other that are way more progressive than mine, um, and I and I've actually because I've worked in home health, I have seen um, some instances that were way more uh, progressive uh, to the point of people being in wheelchairs and being completely constricted. And um, it's an eye-opening experience having it. <laughs> you know, it, it you're you're is this something that could happen to me? Bill's father had the same type of MS as Brett. The relapsing, remitting type. The reason it's called sclerosis, which um, is basically means scarring, um, and and so when you go and do an MRI, like on your brain, uh, right? And yeah, I think you'll be you'll kind of be um, familiar with this too, Matt, uh, with your with your ailments and stuff too. When they do an MRI on your brain, it shows up like you have a, a spot, like a white spot on your brain, um, and that usually is where the they call it placking, um, and that's usually where the white blood cells kind of pool up and are, and are, yeah, you can see it in an MRI. Um, it, it shows up almost like a brain tumor, like a, like a white spot there. Um, and so whenever I was diagnosed, um, the MRI showed two major spots on my parietal lobe, um, and my frontal lobe. And so, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a brain expert. I'm not an expert in any of this stuff, but I'm not a brain expert. And so I did do some research and, from what I understand, the frontal lobe is the thing that basically makes you who you are, makes you a person, pretty much. Um, <clears throat> and so that you can you can understand that there are some complications there when you have something that's not supposed to be there in that area. It can kind of make you crazy or not who you are. But uh, you know, and you can you can expect like depression stuff like that is is another another thing that you you can um, have a an issue with because it just it just sort of dampens everything it's it's something that's not supposed to be there and um <clears throat> the other stuff that you can you can that, that people can expect and stuff that I've I've dealt with too is a lot of fatigue um a lot of like uh, uh flu like symptoms um can happen if i overdo it too much you know at work or something like that it takes me way longer to recover and i just feel like crap Pretty much. I mean, that's the only really way I can, exp- exp- you know, explain it. I'm not like, you know, vomiting and stuff like that, like you would with the flu, but you just don't feel well. It literally can affect any part of the body. And it's, that's what it makes it kind of weird and hard to diagnose and stuff. MS patients experience pain in a somewhat different way. Maybe pain isn't even the right word for it. It's not like stubbing your toe or scraping your knee on pavement. Space and time affect the body in counterintuitive ways during an MS flare-up. Think of being on a boat, seasick, 
flu-like symptoms, vomiting, achy, and off-balance. It's sunny, so you're warm, but frost-bitten numbness tingles across your whole body. Eyesight is hit and miss, so you start to question the things you see. Was that dot really there? And what used to be familiar is made to feel very, very strange. I've heard Phil tell me about this, so I wanted to know what MS felt like for Rhett. So, you know, I've only had a couple of flare-ups um, since I've, I've actually had been diagnosed, right? Um, but my initial symptom was uh, what they call optic neuritis, which just means my vision went out um, in, an, in one of my eyes, basically. Um, and my symptoms tend to be um, one hemisphere or the other, so hemispherical. Um, and, and what I mean by that is one side of my body or the other. Um, which is really strange. So usually I can feel if I'm, if I'm not going to feel well or, or whatever, I don't really attribute that to like a relapse, but I have had some that have actually been real flare ups, real exacerbations of, of my, my issues. Um, the, the main ones that I usually get, the main thing that I usually can see is, um, I usually get vertigo pretty, pretty bad. Uh, the room spinning, feeling like I'm, I'm falling, feeling like I'm, I'm super, super dizzy um, because there's fluid in there. there there's, uh, you know, inflammation and fluid in my brain around my nerves that, that would deal with my equilibrium, right? So I, I get dizzy and get uh, the room spinning feeling and all that kind of stuff. Um, and usually vomiting comes from that, of course, uh, because you're basically moving without moving and your body doesn't like that. So it tries to get rid of everything that's in there. Um, I've had, <laughs> this is a weird one and I don't know what it was. I don't know what caused it, but, um, I, I had spent some time in Alabama, uh, at my dad's house, at my parents' house. And, uh, we came back, I drove back from there. And when I got back, like maybe like a couple of days later, I had felt some numbness in my hand. Right. And sometimes I still get it. I still get that, uh, some, some nerve issues where I can't feel anything in one of my hands, usually my left hand, which, is weird because I'm I'm dominantly left-handed, um, and so I, we were coming back, and I felt weird that day when we left. Drove all the way back, which is like a six-hour drive, which is not always fun. It's not good for you to just be in a car for six hours um, without getting out or stretching and stuff, right? So, um, and I already felt weird, so put, uh, compile that on top of it. Um, and when I got back home. I think I want to say that I had had vertigo or something uh, a couple of days later and I was vomiting. Of course, I went to the to the um, I think it had stopped. Maybe I don't remember exactly the details, but um, I started getting numbness and it went up my arm. It started going up my arm, which usually says heart attack, right? You're, you're numb in your left hand in your left side. Um, but then it kept spreading and it ended up being like the tip of my skull on my left side all the way down to my toes. Um, and it was just extremely weird. And that lasted for like, I want to say like a week where I basically almost needed a cane to walk because my entire left side was numb from my toes to the tip of my skull. Um, and I, I still don't know what it is. We went and did, uh, IV steroids, uh, which, uh, solumedrol, which, um, it pretty much gets rid of all the fluid that would be around the nerves and stuff. And that knocked it out. It got rid of it. I've never had that since. I have had the the hemispherical numbness uh, mostly in my hand um, from time to time, just depending on how I feel. Like if I'm sick or something, I'll get it. But I've never had that happen again. And it is such a weird feeling to be left-handed and your entire left side not work uh, properly. 
weird. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like fibromyalgia because I know we talked about that before. It's not. It's not necessarily chronic pain. All always. It's more. Uh, it's more fatigue, and um, some some cognitive issues here and there. Uh, with with forgetting things or or just not thinking things correctly, thinking things through the right way. You know, um, that kind of stuff. As far as just like, I mean, because I because you think about it being a nerve disorder, right? A nerve disease. You would think it would be more either more painful or more you'd have numbness and stuff. And I don't experience that. I know people do. Um, but most of mine is just uh, fatigue and like a sick feeling, a uh, you know flu-like feeling every once in a while. If I if I overdo it or if I'm out in the heat, which is another thing, um, sensitivity to heat is is bad. And I live in Florida, so uh, <laughs> that's that's not good, right? Um, I'm usually in the heat pretty much about ninety percent of the day, uh, and whether I'm actually outside or not, so it's just hot everywhere. Um, one of the biggest things about MS is that it's a there. There's a vitamin D deficiency, um, and you kind of to get that naturally, you have to be in the sun, right? Um, that's that's how you get it, but you can't be in the heat um, to be out in the sun, and so it's this weird like you have to kind of pick your battles with it, and and you can take supplements and stuff, but the natural way, of course, is to be out in the sun, and that's almost impossible in Florida to just not be hot but also be out in the sun <laughs> I feel that like you know when I wake up in the morning and, uh, you know, I have to get up usually an hour ahead of time, you know, to take, uh, my pain medication, you know, pain wakes me up and it's my constant companion. And so I, you know, I, like this morning I got up, took my medicine, uh, and then went back to bed and usually I'll read or I'll take an online course in those quiet moments between say 5:30 and 6:30 in the morning while I'm waiting for this to kick in you know I I'm I'm not terrorized I don't catastrophize my pain this is Karen Duffy who you might remember from MTV Dumb and Dumber and Reality Bites what you might not know is that she is a three-time author disability advocate and one of the smartest people I have ever met like seriously it is feels like there is this evil parrot on my right shoulder and he's got his razor blade claws digging into my shoulder and then this pointy electrifying beak that is just pecking around my uh shoulder and neck and top of my head and uh so it's nerve pain which um is a very sharp burning sensation and uh the interesting thing about pain is that it essentially destroys language. Like it, it is pain is so resistant to lingual expression. I mean, if we're happy, 
you know, we've got the words of, you know, Keats and Yeats. I mean, I can, you know, we've got, if we're sad, we've got, you know, Wolf, we've got uh, so many people who've said it better before us, except for pain, because pain is, ugh. I mean, it, it, and I am a gas bag, Matt. I mean, I could talk the ears off of a brass monkey, but when I am in pain, I am muted. And uh, like, you know, the people who are close to me, as I'm, you know, walking down talking and all of a sudden I will be like, ah, and they realize that I am having a almost, I am seized by pain. And um, so I feel that um, that's really, that's one of the interesting things about trying to express pain is that it is unique to all of us. Uh, but in my situation, it is this blinding, burning, relentless sensation. The pain Karen is talking about is the result of suffering from sarcoidosis of the central nervous system. It's an inflammatory disease that affects multiple organs in the body, but mostly the lungs and lymphatic system, which means everything potentially. I asked her what this feels like, how she describes her pain experience, and some of the effects her pain and dysfunction has had on her life. Sarcoidosis is what is can it is a rare disease and uh i have it in its rarest form because i have sarcoidosis of the central nervous system so uh this the permeable cells so it attacks anywhere soft tissue so only my teeth and hair um are not are not off the table for sarcoidosis involvement and um so the soft cells become like sugar or crystallized. And those um, collections of cells create something called a granuloma. And so I have a bumper crop of granulomas in my brain and knotted down my spinal column. But in my brain, this granuloma grew so big and your skull is an enclosed environment. So there was no place where my brain could go. So uh, as this granuloma just got bigger and bigger, it crushed the nerves that um, are involved with the, you know, with, with this, with my uh, shoulder, neck, uh, fingers, and actually, and my toes. And then, uh, so mainly sarcoidosis is uh, attacks your lungs. And the good news is in about 80% of the cases, it resolves spontaneously. Because there's a disease of unknown origin and there's only under i think in the us it's if under 200,000 you really don't get a whole lot of funding um and also diseases that affect women more than men there's not a lot of a race because uh you know to do a lot of experimentation on women of childbearing age um so it's uh you know it's complicated and frustrating but i kind of don't really focus on what I can't do. Um, I kind of focus on what I can do. And uh, so I try and get the word out about sarcoidosis and that probably if you get a diagnosis of sarcoidosis, it will be uh, hopefully like a really 
annoying case of bronchitis that maybe lasts for several seasons. But um, the upside is uh, it is very rare to be somebody like me that has uh, neurological involvement and, um, and then it, for it to develop into chronic pain. Seems strange to hear any good news in the same sentence as a central nervous system disease, but as Karen talks, I come to understand that the landscape of good news is sometimes a consequence of chance with a dose of luck. Karen's levity and humor spoke miles the whole time we talked. I found it to be infectious, and I left the interview wanting to cook with love for my own family. As she says, when faced with unknowns, focus on what we can do. We're going to take a few minutes to thank some folks who helped make this episode possible. If you want to join our conversation about chronic pain and illness, check us out on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. We're on Facebook at The SimPod, and you can email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Stick around. Hello, this is Alexander. I'm a professional life coach, a career coach, and you might have heard of me. I am the world's first authentic podcaster's coach. I help my clients get back on track with their lives. I help my clients achieve the goals that they're striving to achieve, and I help my clients live positively and happily. If you are interested in rocket fuel to your life's journey, please contact me at podcasterscoach.com. Send me an email, alexander at podcasterscoach. Make it a great day. If you like this episode, give it a review on podchaser.com. It's the only podcast directory with individual episode ratings and reviews. Listen to what this longtime Podchaser fan has to say about their experience with Podchaser. This is Travis Vengroff, the creator of Liberty and the producer of the White Vault podcast. Podchaser is like a blade runner, only instead of hunting androids, it's helping you hunt for good shows. Podchaser is building other great features like People Search. Find your favorite hosts, guests, and podcast creators on Podchaser, just like IMDb. And you can keep up with Podchaser by creating your very own account today and reviewing your favorite episodes of this show. Hey, Phil here. And this is Matt. We wanted to take a minute to tell you about how we recorded Chronicity. A little peek behind the curtain. Cast is an online service for podcasters that will change how you connect with people all over the world. We've been using Cast for months now, and our Chronicity series was made possible in part by our decision to use Cast. Cast is a podcasting platform that makes it easy to record, edit, and publish a podcast without leaving your browser. Okay, Philly, let's tell the good folks a little bit more about it. As a Luddite, I love how easy it is to use and how simple the setup is for our guests. You simply click a link that is emailed 30 minutes before your session, and Cast takes care of the rest. There's no fiddling around with setting up multiple tracks either. Cast records each guest track separately for you. Another aspect that I really appreciate is that regardless of internet connection issues, it always records cleanly because it is constantly uploading the files. Yeah, Cast isn't like other voice over IP services. With synchronized high quality audio streams that are automatically downloaded to the cloud, you're going to get a crisp recording experience every time. So I've tried to use services like Skype or Google for podcasting. And while these are great for chatting or maybe business meetings, they don't result in the high quality audio that we need for podcasting. Cast is different. The service actually records different mic inputs independently, just like if you were recording directly into your computer. Cast then synchronizes the audio tracks so you don't have to try to get everything lined up afterwards. It saves you time, it's easy to use, and it results in high quality show for your listeners. 
One other thing, Matt. In an age when we are all freaked out about giving away our personal data, we as podcasters need to think about data we sometimes unwillingly generate on behalf of our guests. When you invite someone to record and cast, they don't need to sign up. No emails if they don't want it. No slimy newsletters. No hidden cookies. They don't even need to give their real name if they don't want to. All the guest needs is the URL to the studio session that you've set up. I don't know any other service that does this. I think it can make us all responsible podcasters. I actually also like it uh, when you use it in that non-record state. It's kind of like a much better version of Skype. It's clear. It's cleaner. There's like zero setup. You just send a fresh link whenever. So in this way, we can chat with our guests before hitting record as a way to kind of warm them up a bit and go over the show's format, which I know we like to do, and I'm sure a lot of other fellow podcasters enjoy doing as well. And Phil, lastly, as you know, as someone with uh, pretty severe memory issues, the built-in scheduling feature, which automatically sends guests an email with the date and time when you book them in, then another one automatically 30 minutes before your start time, has been and continues to be a real lifesaver. Honestly, it kind of helps me look professional, and it just sort of takes all the thinking out of it for me. All right, I'm going to get a little technical. Cast has three parts, the studio, the editor, and the publisher. The studio is where you record and where you connect with your next big guest. In the studio, you will find a simple but professional-looking and intuitive layout with modern design. It will make you and your show look really professional but not pretentious. Remember, you don't need any extra software to make Cast run. It all happens right in your browser, and the audio you record is instantly uploaded to the cloud. So those days of accidentally deleting a session are over. The editor lets you cut, slice, drop in audio like intro music or promos, and has a neat feature like dynamic compression. It's easy to use, and if you have never edited a podcast before, Cast Editor may just be the right thing for you. Then, publish your podcast with the click of a button. All cast plans include hosting, RSS feeds, and analytics at no extra charge. If you already have a host, no problem. You can download your recorded tracks in MP3 version. Yes, I said tracks, plural. When you record a cast, each guest generates a separate MP3 file, making everything super easy to edit in your software or DAW of preference. So, Philly, how can they take advantage of this very fine service? If you have a podcast and have been struggling to get good quality audio from your internet conversations, or if you want to start a podcast but don't have time or money to invest in complicated recording setups, try Cast. You can start using Cast today. Go to www.cast.rocks forward slash chronicity to sign up for Cast using our referral link and start your free month. By using our link, you are really going to help out our show. So we can bring you more unique content like the Chronicity series. So again, that's www.cast.rocks forward slash chronicity and find Cast on Twitter at Cast App. Oh, thanks a bunch there, eh? Oh yeah, thanks a bunch, eh? Oh, they won't have to go into the snowstorms. Or snowshoe uphill both ways to the cabin. They, uh, they'll never miss another hockey game. Go Canucks. You mean Habs. Go Canucks. Whatever. Oh, they can wear their lawn johns and toques while podcasting now. With all the maple syrup they want on their sticky fingers. With a Labatt. Oh, for sure, a Labatt, eh? Or a Putin. While podcasting? Eh, why not?
Theodore Dostoevsky said, to think too much is a disease. But what happens when all we can do is think? I don't mean in an intellectual sense. With thoughts that flutter and minds that race, for some, the uneasiness that comes with thinking too much can't be stopped. Chronic pain and illness sometimes travel from the body to the mind. As physical pain turns into emotional suffering, the threads that hold us together continue to unravel. Oh, it was like laundry is the worst thing because literally all you have to do is put it in the machine and put it in the other machine and she has clothes put in so many different places based on like seasons and where she can wear it and stuff that I don't have to put any of her stuff up. So all I have to do is pull it out of the dryer and throw it on the bed and it gets to the end of the day and it's like I couldn't even do laundry today. What the hell is wrong with me? Oh wait, how clean do I have to be? Meet Chris Osborne. He is the host of Play Comics Podcast. Chris opened up about his struggles with anxiety and depression, an all-too-common state of mind. Yeah, my favorite are the days where I decide I'm going to watch something on Netflix while I eat breakfast, and my wife is off doing something with her family. I look up, and all of a sudden, oh, hey, it's 1.30. I haven't done anything all day. So at that point, you know, do I want to hurry up and, you know, try to super rush myself and get some things done? Or is it just a lost day? Because I'm not going to be able to get enough things done compared to what I needed to get done anyway. So should I just take advantage of it and completely write the whole day off? For Chris, making friendships while growing up was foregrounded by time. Well, I really started noticing it after we got married because we got married and... We'd started the school year and I was being a substitute teacher and so was she, but she got a job down here in Charleston. So we had to finish off the lease and what made the most sense for us was for her to go down to Charleston, live with her parents and, you know, spend free time looking for a place for us to live and me to stay up where we were living before because ending the lease just wasn't something we could financially do. So I'm sitting there. I would go to work. I would go home. I would hang out with the cats. And that was about it. Because all the friends that we'd made in college either had schedules that didn't work or they didn't stay there like we did. The anxiety on my end is a lot of... I need to get these things done, but I don't know where I'm going to have time to do it and trying to figure that out. And also on a completely kind of forky topic of it, like growing up Air Force and moving around every three or four years, I didn't really have time to make those long lasting friendships with people because I'm old enough to where talking to people on the internet like we can do today just wasn't a super common thing. So it's a lot of anxiety kind of driven through the end of, I need to hurry up and make sure these people like me because I've only got a couple years to get that going. And otherwise I'm going to sit here with no friends. When the mind is set in motion against the clock, a looming sense of failure can easily set in. Knowing that that's why, you know, I've kind of been able to slow things down now that I'm in a spot where I'm going to be for a while. But growing up, it was basically a cycle of 
the first year trying to hurry up and make friends with as many people as possible and trying to totally throw myself into a friend group that like some of the jokes I would make would be perfectly fine if I had grown up with them my whole life, but coming from somebody who wasn't there that whole time is just kind of kind of over the line just for who it was coming from. And also I have a tendency to sit there and kind of remember stupid little details about things. So it's kind of like, Hey, why does he remember this thing from last week that nobody remembers? The second year would be, you know, I'd have my friends and everything would be fine. And then the third year would be like, okay, there's absolutely no reason for me to try to get close to anybody else because I'm going to be gone in a year anyway. Chris works in retail. He helps to connect vendors with salespeople and clients. He deals with deadlines on a daily basis. But when the mind is fluttering, even the most menial of tasks can be difficult to perform. Forgetting, as a result of a racing mind, leads to a sense of failure, wrecking havoc on our self-esteem. My job at work is basically to be there at the counter for whatever, whoever comes in, I help them out. And we have outside salesmen and one of them came over and probably like 9.30 or 10 in the morning, you know, had this order written down, said, hey, Chris, I need you to write this order up for me and get it shipped out tomorrow. And of course that was, you know, right before we had a rush of people coming in. So I didn't get to it until like 1.30. So when I was getting that all set up, he saw that it was going to get delivered late. And I'd been sitting there the whole day, like, you know, I need to get this thing put in, need to get this thing put in, never having a chance to kind of collect myself and actually do it. The whole drive home was just crap. I ruined this thing for him and his customer. I ruined my chance of getting anything else from him because he certainly doesn't have to give me anything to write up. And just kind of going through every single bad thing that could happen because I took a couple hours to put an order in, which in the end isn't really a big deal. You know, I mean, obviously when we're slow, it's fine because I've got time to do everything. And when we're super, super, super busy and you don't have time to think about anything, I'm fine because you don't have time to think about anything. It's those kind of middle grounds where you've got a second every once in a while and you start to remember everything that you haven't done yet. And I mean, the best thing I got out of working from restaurants was one of my friends pounding into my head to write everything down on the prep list because you just should never trust yourself to remember everything you need to do the next day. Anxiety and depression takes a toll on the body. I've seen and have been through firsthand the exhaustion that Chris talks about. I'll start with after because that's easier. It's just completely drained. I want to sit there in the house, just nobody. Maybe the cats, because they'll just sit there and not want to say anything to me. But just getting back over that, you know, you just, at least for me, I just need time to sit there and kind of collect myself again. Like one of the thing, I don't want to call it a trigger because I think it's more of just an indicator, but the Johnny Cash version of Hurt, when that get when that gets stuck in my head, and it isn't because somebody was just playing it, I know things are about to get bad. 
I was probably about 10, and I'm 38 now. This is Amy. She is an avid podcast listener and is probably going to start her own show soon. Amy is also a migraine sufferer and has been for basically her whole life. I just specifically, like, I can remember sometimes just having to go and lay in a dark room with, like, a cold rag and just... I like it to be really cold when I have a migraine and I go lay down and I, that's what I can remember from when I was little. I mean, every day when I wake up, I have a headache. It may not be a migraine, but I have a headache every day. Um, and unfortunately here lately, there hasn't been many days that they've gone away. Um, I usually either keep the same headache or it'll get worse or even, you know, move into migraine status I guess you could call it it's not so much that I f- feel the change in the weather I can feel a headache coming on and um, I can tell that it's probably barometric pressure because um, I wake up every day with a headache sometimes it goes away sometimes it gets worse but when it starts to get worse is when I realize it's probably something like barometric pressure Amy is a 911 dispatcher and as such works to manage the traumatic experiences from that work with their daily struggles with migraines. It's kind of like a pressure at the front of my head. It's always on my left side, and it just feels kind of like a pressure, almost like someone's knocking right there, if that makes any sense at all. Exactly where I always have a migraine, so it would be like right above my left eye, and... It's almost like someone is just kind of pushing you, if that makes sense. Honestly, you know, I try to explain it in the best way possible, basically. And some people may think that I'm crazy, but, you know, like someone has an ice pick and they're just jamming it in my head, like right above my left eye. Or, you know, there have been times that it's been so bad, like I've even said before, like someone took pliers and they're just twisting you know um yeah it, it it can get really bad smell is one um i can't really be around a bunch of very strong perfume or anything like that like one of the worst ones is um i think it's a calvin klein obsession that that gives me the worst headache um the only other thing that i've really noticed a lot um i'm very lucky that i don't get really nauseous with migraines but i do get the i guess the auras um where the you know it looks like you have little dots swimming in your vision if that makes sense i found her ability to maintain a functional life to be inspiring faced with potentially debilitating migraines amy speaks about the normalcy of the whole thing maybe it's because she's endured the constant pain her whole life but now she can say that her headaches are always just there. As I've had them for so long, I, um, I'm more of a functioning migraine sufferer. Um, so I just have to go through school and work and, you know, events and stuff with them and just hope that it doesn't get so bad that I can't, you know, function. Um, it's very frustrating because... You know, like I said, my biggest trigger is barometric pressure. And if I could prevent that from changing, that would be amazing. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> um, so I, 
if there was a prevention out there, it would be amazing. I honestly don't know that they would ever be able to find one because so many people have so many different triggers. I really don't know that they would be able to find something that would work across the board, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, I've had some that have lasted a couple weeks. I've had some that, you know, can last a couple hours. It can be anywhere, you know, between. Um, to me, well, first of all, um, my migraines, I've had headaches before are just regular it's just some regular pain, I guess. Um, it's kind of all over or like a sinus headache being usually for me. I don't know what it's like for you if you have them, but um, they're kind of all across the front top of my head is a sinus headache. For me, my migraines are always in the exact same spot and it's always the same sensation. I can deal with my migraines. I can work through them if I have to, you know. It's gotten, like I said earlier, it's gotten to that point to where I have to function with them. But, like, I got a tattoo a couple of years ago, and it was the worst experience in my entire life, and I'll never get another one because it hurts so bad. <laughs> Even though Amy is able to push through, she still has to make choices about where she can go based on the constant pain inside her head. Yeah, I mean, there's been several times that I've thought, man, if I didn't have this migraine, I could go and do this or, you know, go hang out in loud places. I don't know. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't think about it that much. It's more like it's a way of life for me. So I don't really think of not being able to be there. It's just, I just don't go, if that makes sense. I do know that I'll never try scuba diving. Um just because, well, this is really weird, and maybe I'm wrong in thinking this, but I did the whole sleep study, and they had they said that I had sleep apnea, and they put me on a CPAP machine, and it gave me the worst migraine I'd ever had in my life, and which was weird because it's oxygen, and you th you would think it would be so much better. And the only thing I could think of, and that the doctor actually talked to me about when I took it back, was the pressure of the machine being on is probably what it was. So I don't even want to try getting in to something scuba diving wise and go way down deep and have that, you know, pressure change. And yeah, I'll, I'll go snorkeling all day, but no scuba diving. No, my question, I did have a question. That's Lindsay Johnson, co-host of Hello Life WTF and the pod stuff. Amy and Lindsay are besties and were together when we spoke. Because you mentioned um, like, you know, say you have three months in between a migraine, you know, do you feel like it would always be in the back of your mind so much, like you're stressing about it so much that it, you would stress yourself into one? I know I would. You know, because I know like I you're just think, waiting on it. This is, there's no way this is happening. When is it coming? Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 And one thing I will say, um, this is kind of, I mean, it's on the subject, but it's kind of off subject. One thing that kind of scares me about the migraines, my mom had them, you know, obviously my whole life when she was alive. And um, she, when she passed away, she passed away of an aneurysm. And her brother um, had an aneurysm that they caught in enough time. And um, 
now we actually think that her father had an aneurysm and that may be what killed him when she was six. So this was back in the 60s. But um, because of that history, I have to go and get MRIs done every seven to ten years, make sure I don't have an aneurysm that could be forming. So it kind of scares me when I get them because I think of my mom and I think, oh, this could happen, you know, because they're genuinely concerned about it possibly happening at some point. Knowing, not knowing, stressing. For Amy, a momentary lapse in pain can quickly lead to worrying. Lindsay can also relate to this aspect of life. Well, I started, I mean, I started thinking about it just as, and maybe it's not just a female thing, but we're worriers anyway. And so, you know, when you're used to something happening all the time, and then it's kind of like the whole, if you're used to bad things happening in your life all the time, and then things start going good, you're like, oh, crap. Things are going good. What's what's about to happen? Something bad's about to happen. Uh, so I kind of feel like it would be the same thing if you're so used to that pain, uh, you know, at a certain time or certain situations, that if it didn't come, that you would just kind of uh, freak out. Yeah. Where is it? And and I couldn't even devote, like, I would probably say it would be 50-50, like 50%, I'm so excited, this is amazing, and 50%, when is it coming back? Because I know it is. Yeah, it's an everyday part of life. Or part of everyday life, maybe. (laughs) Okay, so what I thought... I got my first hernia. Apparently, I was I was born with it. I had an umbilical hernia and never knew about it. Right? I thought well, this is Susan good. Reynolds. She How hosts cool a military that, right? family no, focused no, podcast cool. called Spouse Spouts. She cares passionately about supporting pregnant. and advocating on behalf of military families in the U.S. Her drive to help and dedication to a life of advocacy became apparent throughout was, our conversation. I was massive, and I was. Very, very just, I had so much fluid. You could see it in my hands, in my wrists. It was just, it was a lot of fluid retention. And I would go, I we were living in Nebraska. We were stationed in Nebraska and, and it was the summer and it was seriously one of the hottest summers they had had in years, you know, triple digit days, right? So all I did was go to the pool every day and swim for hours to get the fluid out of my body and I would seriously lose about 10 pounds a day worth of fluid. But the next day I would wake up and I would have that 10 pounds right back because it was, again, fluid retention, right? So I had this little part that was sticking out on the side and I thought, I don't know what that is, but that can't be good. And so I told my doctor and he started to look at it. But again, the blood pressure went through the roof and I ended up having to have an emergency C-section. And then we moved to North Carolina right after that. And that was it. So I never really could follow up. And one day I, 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 it was, you know, spring height of allergy season. And I coughed so hard that I thought I seriously was ripping my guts open. Susan talked to us about her experiences with ADHD, anxiety, Hashimoto's thyroid, and chronic hernias. She is an example of the struggle to define primary and secondary conditions, how they interact, 
and how variable chronic pain and illness can be. And I started to cry because it was so painful. I honestly thought that childbirth was a little bit easier than ripping my guts open. <laughs> because that was really, it was it was because it was so sharp and it was just a very different, different kind of pain. It was not what I was expecting, right? I thought, whoa, that's not good. And it was the kind of pain that indicated something was wrong, not, oh, this is temporary. I'm going to have a baby. This was, this was, there's something really wrong with your body, lady. You better, you better check it out and fix it, right? So I, I got that one young. Um, I was in my early 20s when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroid. Uh, thyroid issues run in my family. So yay, genetics. Um, it's, you know, it's your thyroid. And what it is, is that your thyroid just decides to act a little wacky. So sometimes it's low thyroid and sometimes it's high thyroid function, right? And so it can be overactive or underactive and it never seems to make up its mind. It just kind of does its own thing whenever it wants. We wanted to know what she feels and how she experiences her illness. So sometimes I will have, um, you know, I will be like my hair will start to thin a little bit, right? Or my hair gets really dry and brittle or my nails will get really dry and brittle, right? And um, sometimes I will experience uh, coldness that I just, I can't seem to get warm. Like, oh, my feet are always cold. Why, Why am I so cold all the time, right? Or then... Sometimes I'm really warm natured, you know, it just depends. It really is. It just never, it really is just depending on where the thyroid hormones are. Uh, Sometimes I will have a lot of fatigue and I can barely, you know, like I'm just, I'm just sleepy. I just, it doesn't matter how much coffee I drink. I'm just, I'm tired. I'm just so tired. And then you know, sometimes I have like this extra pep to my step because, of course, my thyroid hormones are up again, right? The weight gain is always really interesting with that one, too. Sometimes I can lose weight just, I mean, I can eat all the same food and some, somehow I'm, I've am i lost five pounds. Okay, that doesn't make sense. But then sometimes I, I don't, you know, it's just, it's very strange how up and down it is all the time. And I have my blood monitored every three months, and I'm not kidding Every three months, the number is never the same. I've never had the same number for my my thyroid levels. They're always either really high or really low. The variableness of Susan's conditions is almost a cruel parallel to her military family life. Susan's experience reminds me of life at the intersection of extreme normals. The biggest issue I have with it is, um, so I had a partial thyroidectomy a few years ago because I actually had a, a tumor growing on the left side of my thyroid. And it got pretty big. It was about three and a half centimeters. And they took out the left, left lobe, the surgeon did, and the right one was okay. So for me, the issue that we, I'm running into is that the thyroid levels never, ever go outside of the, what is considered normal blood work levels, right? Mine never likes to travel outside of normal, but it goes from extremes in the normal range. All we're doing at this point is monitoring the thyroid to make sure that it doesn't become cancerous like with my mother and to keep an eye and to make sure that a tumor doesn't grow on the part that's still left in.
So the answer to that is that I don't know. Uh, my doctor is fairly well convinced that I've had it for much longer than we knew. This is Donna Hume. She is one of the happiest chronic pain sufferers you'll ever come across. Donna is co-host on the Varmints podcast, as well as on the Soapy Madams podcast. Yes, a podcast all about the soaps. The it she is talking about is fibromyalgia. I've always had a very low tolerance for pain. That's one of the first sort of signals that your body kind of sends you is like this incredibly low tolerance for pain. Um, and I've been made fun of for it all my life, this low pain tolerance. So that's the first thing that happened. And just different things that happened over just exhaustion episodes and weird illnesses. Fibromyalgia patients often have IBS. They sometimes have just other just odd things that just come out of nowhere and don't seem to make any sense. But it's a, it's a condition of the central nervous system, so that's connected to everything. So that's that's why it's kind of hard to nail down exactly when it started. Because who knows? It, it could have been in my 20s. It could have been as early as then. So a fog is the best way to describe it. You just feel like you are... You can't understand what people are saying. You can't adequately express your own thoughts. You forget things. You repeat yourself. It's pretty horrible. And I've always had a habit of repeating myself for as long as I can remember and not being able to organize my thoughts. And so it just, I don't know if it's a feature of the illness or if it's just gotten worse because of it. I have no idea, but. Yeah, that is a thing. So the fiber patients definitely call it brain fog. And it really is just like there's this heavy fog over your whole thinking process and you can't get out of it. According to the National Fibromyalgia Association, the disorder affects an estimated 10 million people in the U.S. and an estimated 3 to 6% of the world population. In Canada, there are an estimated 500,000 people living with fibromyalgia. Due to it being hard to diagnose and social stigmas associated with the disorder, the prevalence is probably higher than the surveys lead us to believe. Fibromyalgia sufferers often talk of being achy and in pain. Neural inputs are experienced at heightened levels, like overloading a microphone or instrument signal by turning the gain dial all the way up. Donna talks about the feeling and some of the consequences of being amped in this way all the time. When I started really feeling off was about 2000. 11, I was going through a divorce, and that seems to have triggered the whole series of exhaustion. I was just so tired. I was tired all the time and in pain a lot. Just you feel like you have the flu. You know that achiness that you get when you have the flu, that fever body ache? That's how it feels. All the time, yeah, pretty much every day. I'm in a certain amount of pain every single day, every day, like constantly. We've tracked it. I've used software and tracked it all sorts of different ways, and there doesn't seem to be any consistency to what will cause a flare-up. I don't drive anymore because I just can't afford to. I can't afford to keep a car anymore. But we did notice that driving for more than 30 minutes at a time really bugged me. Going out to a friend's house for a party or something can usually just kill me. Like, noise is too much. Because it's like your nerves are on... It's like they're receiving everything much louder. Sounds, light, physical feelings, everything that you, that comes into your nervous system is turned up a whole bunch. And so the idea is that that's probably what causes the fatigue, is that you're just 
you're just amped all the time. Your nervous system is just taking in so much information all the time. So, and again, nobody really knows for sure because nobody knows what causes fibromyalgia and they don't know exactly what the physical triggers are. So, I mean, it's difficult to say. It's still a lot of research to be done. So, We wanted to know how Donna's fibromyalgia impacts her experience of time, guilt, and the inevitable turn towards worry that can accompany pain and illness. When I figured out that I was never going to be able to take care of myself again, I that I was never going to be able to work full-time, I was never going to be able to pay my own rent and take care of my whole life, that was a pretty big blow. I had to move back in with my parents after my divorce for a little while. I did try to work a year after. I worked for a year, and, oh, I was the most terrible employee, my productive... My productivity was terrible. I was always having to leave to go home because I was sick all the time. And I would have to come home after an eight-hour day of working and sleep for two or three hours. And then you have two minutes to take care of your house and clean things or whatever. And then you have to get up and do it all over again. And so after a year of that, I just kind of realized, I just admitted that I was defeated and done. I wasn't going to be able to take care of myself anymore. And I had to go back to my parents. And that was a that was a wrench. That was hard. And my parents helped me get through it a lot. They were very sympathetic and, of course, didn't have any problem taking me back in. <laughs> they were fine with it. And, you know, because it wasn't my fault that I got sick. So with therapy and coping mechanisms and time, because it's been since 2012 I was diagnosed. I, actually, I would think I was diagnosed in 2011. So I've had lots of time to learn how to live with this. And I feel like I'm probably pretty good at living with it now. So no, I don't feel guilty anymore. I just wish I could do more. I wish I could contribute more to my household. And I wish that I could still do art to the level that I'd gotten used to. And I wish that I could type as fast as I used to. All that stuff. But I don't feel guilty about it anymore because it's not my fault. Um, so now I'm just dealing with my life on the level of what does retirement mean and what does it mean for the rest of my life and how do I, that stuff all worries me, but the guilt feeling doesn't. Donna is sincere, articulate, and supportive of others. Her adorable laugh is evidence of her ability to face challenges head on while living with her condition and the symptoms that come along with it. That laugh though can put a smile on anyone's face. I was having a really bad episode the other day and my boyfriend came in I had the room dark and I was laying in my bed and he goes are you sleeping honey and I said no I'm not I'm just I'm just in a lot of pain and I can't stand the light so I'm just laying here but I'm okay <laughs> so and he said no you're not it's not okay and I'm like no I mean I'm not going to die <laughs> so <laughs> Let me let me start where it originated. I was um, 15, just almost 16 years old, and I was in a car wreck, and I broke a number of vertebrae in my back. And Eric Mulford is the host of the Eric Said podcast, and is also a motivational speaker and life coach. Eric has quite the story of living with chronic pain and illness. Get up and walk around, and all of a sudden, I had all these other issues, and 
come to find out to make a, a long story short, I had diabetes and the um, diabetes was triggered by the car accident. And, um, but my diabetes was never normal. There's never been anything about it that was normal. Uh, I have taken, uh, when, when I go to the pharmacy and I'm going to go as soon as we get off this interview, when I go to the pharmacy and pick up the insulin that I take, I will walk in and they will say to me, we have your suitcase prepared. A three-month supply for me of insulin, of one of the two types of insulin that I take, is the equivalent of what the rest of the patients at that pharmacy order in the same three-month period of time. Eric has suffered from diabetic neuropathy for the past 18 years. Neuropathy is one of those experiences that can manifest throughout the body and in different ways. For Eric, it results in numbness, tingling, and outright loss of feeling in his legs and feet. As he says, the pain takes its toll. I, I had a heart episode back in April of last year, and I was taken to the hospital, and they had all kinds of trouble. Uh, because they're, they're not even allowed to give people as much insulin as I have to have. And um, the doctor just recently had the flu, and the doctor said, we can't, we can't let you go to the hospital. We've got to keep you at home because they're liable to kill you under the circumstances. That's a, that's a common issue. That's a, a, a common occurrence for me to have these real erratic things. Well, I'm not supposed to be alive 44 years later. That doesn't make any sense. Why, why should somebody survive that long? And um, uh, because most, that's just an unusual length of time, but it starts to take its toll. And it takes its toll with, the, uh, with neuropathy. And the p pain in my feet and my legs can at times be completely unbearable. The neuropathy began about 18 years ago. And it was very uncomfortable to walk. And I noticed that I was very unstable when I walked. I thought, this isn't normal. And I went and had my feet tested. And one foot I didn't feel from my ankle down, uh, which makes it really hard for you to have balance if you don't, you know, your toes and th those things are required in order for you to maintain balance. And, uh, and I, I lost all of that sense of feeling in my, in my feet and so it made balance a really difficult thing. And, but that was about 18, 19 years ago when that began. Eric says that his neuropathy, like many other things related to his compounded illnesses, is not normal. Eric also suffers from fibromyalgia. Much like Donna, he has difficulty identifying triggers. Well, the thing that doesn't make any sense at all is that it has affected my stomach. And so I have a, a neurological condition, uh, neurop neurop neuropathy condition in my stomach. And there'll be times when I can, I can eat and my stomach treats the food like it's not there because it doesn't know that it's there. And um, so it's starting to affect other parts of my body uh, besides my feet, my legs, and, and it's now up into my hips. But because I have fibromyalgia, when you have a weird pain someplace, fibromyalgia will shoot this pain symptom all over your body. And um, a, a, a problem, I've broken a toe three times and never knew it was broken. Um, yeah, it turned black and it was like, that's not normal. Um, it's not supposed to look like that. It always starts with the tingling feeling. Uh, it's kind of like your nerves are saying, hey, there's something wrong here, but we don't know what it is. And, and that's kind of what's going on. But the tingling feeling is, is the first thing that you get. 
the the really acute symptoms we can't identify a single thing that triggers that and you know i've been doing this for a long long time so you learn how to identify certain things that trigger something and we can't identify anything that triggers the uh the the the, the neuropathy conditions at all because logically you would just if you could identify you would stop you know, or you would avoid that or whatever it is. But um, you, I, I, we can't, I have not been able to identify a single thing that causes that to happen. Um, I, can, I can do an all-day presentation someplace and feel great. I can do an all-day presentation someplace, and the moment I finish the presentation, I can't walk to the door. Eric's relationship with pain can probably best be described as a whole-body experience. He tells us a story of how small amounts of pain can have big consequences. I'll give you an example, and this one's crazy. I closed the end of my little finger in the cabinet door one day, pinched the living daylights out of the end of my little finger. The pain shot from my finger into my hips and my knees, and I fell on the floor. And my wife said, what in the world? And I'm a great big guy. And she said, what in the world just happened? And I said, I closed my finger in the door. And she said, how did you end up on the floor? I said, I'm not even sure. And then I had a neurologist tell me, that's not uncommon. That's a, a, a fibromyalgia trigger event that you have a sharp pain in, in a tiny spot and it will go to your weakest spots, which happened to be my knees and my hips. And down I went. When pain and illness begin to overtake our bodies, the threads that hold us together physically and emotionally, begin to come apart. Who we are, what we can do, and our sense of identity become incoherent. It was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. Because I was just used to being not just tough, but double tough. And, and you know, you don't, you, you, you're, you, you, when I was 40 years old, I thought I was impervious to everything. And, um, you know, uh, Pain didn't hurt. I know that sounds crazy, but, and, and then this didn't just sneak up on me. This just attacked me. And I was, I, it, it was emotionally difficult to handle that, um, nope, I have to rest. And I think the worst thing that happened was I used to coach a, a, a eight-year-old fall ball team uh, baseball team. And one of the boys reached over, this has been about eight years ago. He reached over and grabbed me by the arm and pulled down on my arm. And he said, you can't beat me. And he took off and I thought, I'm going to whip you. And off I went and I, I, I chased after him and he got about five steps ahead of me and I caught him. And just as I caught him, I went out at the hips, both, both, I, neither leg went forward. And I hit him with my arm as I was going down and both of us ended up in a pile in the ground and he rolled over and he said, Mr. Eric, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to knock you over and, and big old tears coming down his face. And, and I thought he didn't touch me. I'm the one who clobbered him. And I, I felt horrible. I mean, I felt horrible because there's never been a day in my life when somebody said, you can't, you can't outrun me that I wasn't off to the races. And that day I realized I'm not going to be able to do this again. 
Grasping, persisting, finding focus and passion, Eric reminds us that the pain, however intolerable it may become, is just part of our journey. Opportunities have not been stolen from people with chronic pain or illness, nor are sufferers outsiders, sheltered or retracted from the world. Even the most afflicted are not lost, but rather living in chronicity. You know, I, I mean, no matter where I ever went before, I always knew not run anybody in this room or I can lift that and they can't or whatever it was. It just was a mental thing. You don't, you, you don't do it. You just think it, you know? Um, and, and I've always been able to prove it if I ever needed to, but you just, it was just there. And then one day I realized you can't do that anymore. That's just not you. And I know part of that's age, but, but it, this, my situation is not age. That's not the problem. That was a really emotionally hard for me to handle. It was just really hard for me to handle that um, because I used to be a rock climber, used to hike and do lots of cool stuff. But Because there's some things that I still just don't have any issue doing whatsoever. And part of it is a focus. You know, like I said earlier, I can make an all-day presentation. But as soon as I say the last word and get ready to walk off stage, I got to have help. And I thought... I was just pacing back and forth across the stage, and now I can't get down the stairs. I think uh, part of it is when you're doing the thing that you absolutely love, you can get through it. And then when it's over, so are you. If you want to join our conversation about chronic pain and illness, check us out on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. We're on Facebook at The SimPod, and you can email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, and thanks ahead of time for hitting share on these episodes. Hopefully that way it will land in the feed of someone who can use it. Special thank yous go out this week to Tim and Amy. Tim, you struck a chord with me when you said, I just wanted to be able to pick up my daughters in relation to your carpal tunnel, but then describe the ways you make it work for yourself. So I found that very inspiring as a new father. Thank you, Amy. But also thank you, Lindsay Johnson from Hello Life WTF and the Podstuff Podcast for introducing us to Amy. Since our chat, Amy has decided to start her own podcast with her coworker. I, of course, am going to take full credit for this. Thanks for your candor, Amy. I learned a lot about myself from talking to you. The Chronicity series would not sound as good without the help from two people. The first, David Wagner, host of the Addictions Podcast. He is the talent behind the scenes that has brought you the intro track and many of the beats. I invite everyone to subscribe, download, rate, and review the Addictions Podcast, available everywhere. The second, Alex Diskin. He is a singer-songwriter from Central New York, USA. Check out his original music and covers on SoundCloud and YouTube. And if you need some beats or instrumentals made for your podcast, commercial, YouTube, or anything else, you can email him at alexdiskinmusic at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.